Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo. He touches on the current inflation, if China is involved, and how China's economic outlook would be felt by U.S. consumers. Let's dive in. Antonio, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here, Tiffany. So recently in the U.S. especially, inflation is a big deal, right? And Australia's treasurer has partly blamed China for that, specifically the zero COVID policy they have there. So do you see that also playing into the U.S.'s inflation? Well, it is playing a role in the U.S. inflation. So first of all, if we have supply chain disruption, this increases the price of goods. And of course, we import tremendous number of our goods or percentage of our goods from China. So anything that's been disrupted, of course, the price is going to go up. Now, one of the things a lot of people miss with China is that they look at the trade between the United States and China and finished goods and finished services. But what they forget is that China does a lot of processing. So a lot of minerals and raw materials that are extracted maybe from Africa or Latin America or elsewhere, in the world, even from the United States, there are minerals we extract here that we send to China for processing. So if the zero COVID policies are shutting down those processing plants or the shipping and things like that, it drives up the prices of those things. And it's not just finished products, it's also what we call inputs. Uh, so you might have components that are made in China, even goods that you typically believe are made in America might have components from China. So it winds up drive, driving up the price of everything. Antonio, so on the note of inflation, right, it seems right now companies have one end where they want to, say, maybe find a cheap labor to make sure they're earning the biggest profits. But with the current COVID-19 lockdowns in China disrupting supply chains, do you see that changing at all? Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a trend of companies wanting to leave China. Right now, I think that the the trend that is visible at the moment, what's actually happening at the moment, is not necessarily a mass exodus of country of companies from China. But what we are seeing is companies saying our next investment or our next expansion of the factory would have been in China, but now we're probably going to do that in Vietnam or we're going to do that in India. And I also interviewed uh, some companies where they said that they actually have what they call shadow manufacturing. So they actually have like an identical factory someplace else so that when the Chinese one gets shut down, they're manufacturing over there. I have no idea how from a cost basis this works, but I guess that they just calculated um, being shut down for even a week might be so detrimental that it's worth keeping a factory somewhere else. But there's all kinds of crazy solutions that companies are coming up with. But um, so uh, if this persists, obviously, I would imagine we will see an actual exodus. But I think that what we're seeing right now is a decrease in new investment in China and expansion in China. And how are all these decreasing investments in China going to impact China's economy? Because it seems right now they're already struggling. There's the real estate crisis, now the mortgage and all the banks. So how do you see that all playing out? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese economy really is in trouble. Um, it has been. It's been in a downward trend and started with Donald Trump, started with the, the, the trade war. Um, a lot of the media were saying that um, you know, we lost the trade war because our trade deficit didn't decrease, but actually the trade war did tremendous damage to the Chinese economy. And then moving forward, the, um, the pandemic response, the lockdowns, zero COVID, Xi Jinping's crackdown on everything. I mean, because it's not just you know, finance and it's not just the uh, real estate sector. He cracked down on tech, he cracked down on billionaires, cracked down on the education sector, he wiped out effectively wiped out the private education sector, which was you know, billions and billions of dollars and lots of jobs. Uh, we had 10.7 million kids graduate university in China in June. 
Uh, youth unemployment now is 19%. And youth unemployment is a really important statistic because it's easy to overlook because these are people that were not part of the economy yet. So when you have, you know, if you have an increase in adult unemployment, well, these are people that were working and buying goods and paying taxes, right? And when they become unemployed, it immediately impacts the economy, and you can see it. With kids, they weren't part of the economy, so it's easy to overlook. Well, that doesn't hurt anything. They weren't earning any money or paying taxes. Yes, but they're not joining the workforce now. So your economy can't possibly expand at the rate it was expanding. And if you have youth unemployment today, uh, it means you're gonna have you know, adult unemployment later, right? And also it means that as old people are retiring, because whatever number of old people retired this year, you know, of course, China has an average age, which is considerably higher than most, uh, well, than a lot of other countries. Uh, so a lot of Chinese people retired this year. Well, if these kids can't find jobs, that means that when these other people retired, the jobs were not left open. Like maybe they just, you know, discontinued that job, right? So it means that in the future, a very near future, you're going to see a tremendous impact on the economy. Given this current downward trend of China's economy, if it keeps going, is that going to have an impact on international markets? Are we going to feel anything here? Oh, absolutely. You know, because China is the world's largest uh, trading country. Well, the United States and China are the world's largest trading countries. So for a lot of the countries that China trades with, China is their number one trade partner. So if your number one trade partner is in a recession, it's going to affect you. The other thing is, you know, the U.S. is raising, the Fed is raising interest rates in order to counter inflation here. That's attracting investment to the U.S., which is a good thing. It's taking investment away from China, which is a bad thing uh, for, for the Chinese economy. Uh, but reduced investment in China will most likely uh, equal reduced industrial output and reduced exports. And right now, the reduction would be a reduction in growth of industrial output and a reduction in growth of, of exports, right? Um, we're not at a point yet that we're seeing an actual contraction of the Chinese economy, but we're seeing lots of negative indicators and, of course, the growth, uh, the growth outlook dropping. You know that the C CCP has now dropped the growth target as an indicator of the success of the country, basically. You know, and some of the investment banks are estimating China's growth potential for the year uh, below four percent. And the irony of that is two years ago, I was on Bloomberg and they asked me, what is your, you know, what is the output, uh, the outlook for China given COVID? And I, and I listened to the other panelists and they gave these very intelligent answers. And I said, look, you guys are all a lot smarter than me, but do any of you know when these lockdowns are going to stop? Because until the lockdowns stop, we can't even begin to make any sort of reasonable guess what's going to happen to the economy. And the CCP in, in the recent meeting, they said they're not going to abandon the zero COVID. So the prognosis is, is, is bad, right? It's, it's, it's going to slow down further. How much it will slow, I don't know. Anybody that's projecting these numbers, you know, Goldman and all these other big investment banks, I mean, I respect them and, and those are great numbers and they're probably right, you know, but, but I'm not gonna pick a number because we don't know when the lockdowns will stop. And until the lockdowns stop, the Chinese economy just cannot recover. It's literally that simple. So with the lockdowns continuing and maybe disrupting the supply chain, are we going to see that here with, say, more inflation, or how are we going to feel it? Yeah, well, we'll definitely feel it in terms of higher prices. Um, inflation, though, but people are mistaking higher prices with inflation, and it's not exactly 
the case. The higher prices because of the supply chain disruption, yes. But the inflation is caused by reckless spending on the pandemic, I mean, the pan pandemic spending. Inflation comes from the government printing money or the government borrowing money and spending money that it doesn't have. And during the, uh, the pandemic, and, and of course, uh, the administration has now extended the emergency. And what a lot of people don't understand, because a lot of people are saying to me, what does it mean they extended the emergency? Nobody's wearing masks. You don't have to have a vaccine to go to the movies. No, but what it means is that all these economic uh, programs remain in place. It means the government continues to spend recklessly because of the continu continued emergency. And that's why a few weeks ago, when the White House said that they were going to declare an emergency for the uh, uh, climate emergency, I was like, oh my God, no, please no, because it's already so much spending. I mean, we're talking about years of GDP that are just being spent right now. That's your inflation. These other things are price increases. It's not exactly inflation. And so with the spending in the U.S., I think there's a new package for inflation that would spend more to combat inflation, supposedly. Um, so while we have that and then China has this situation happening, what would be the steps to resolve it? Oh, my goodness. So by definition, you cannot spend your way out of inflation. Inflation is caused by government spending. Increasing spending increases the inflation. I don't know where, you know, Janet Yellen and all that, I don't know where they went to school. And they all probably went to much better schools than I did, you know. I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, but uh, that's madness, the definition of inflation. Like, what is the cause of inflation? It's government spending. So how are they planning to get out of the inflation? By spending more money. You know, when you have inflation, you have to raise interest rates, you have to reduce credit, you have to reduce government spending, you have to reduce social programs, you have to reduce everything that pushes money into the economy because we need to decrease the money supply and that's how you curb inflation. And what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for stagflation which is just the absolute worst. It is the, the, the what do they call it, the perfect storm you know, of economic problems because what happens is the Fed raises interest rates, which causes hardship for a lot of people. If you're trying to buy a home right now, mortgage rates are very high. If you want to buy a car, more, you know, the rates are high. So this is negatively impacting people. Businesses do not expand. When the interest rates go up, businesses don't expand. They, they don't want to borrow money from the bank to build another factory because now they're built, borrowing at a higher rate, right? So that's how it impacts the economy. And when the Fed raises interest rates, it causes unemployment. Now we're doing this to combat the inflation because we've already got whatever, seven, eight, nine percent inflation. We don't want this to turn into Zimbabwe level you know, hyperinflation. So the government has to curb that by raising interest rates, which is great. However, with that, the, the government has to stop spending money and they are not stopping and they're announcing more spending. So all they're gonna do is the government spending increases the inflation the Fed raising interest rates increases pain, and we're just going to have pain and inflation together. You're going to have unemployment and inflation, which I lived through it. You know, in the 70s, that's what we had, and uh, and it was horrible. And it's so hard to combat. When Volcker took over the uh, uh, the Fed, he raised interest rates 20 percent at one point, and that's what it took to finally curb the stagflation from the 70s. I mean, and you talk about pain. You know, you raise interest rates to 20%. Nobody's buying a new home. Nobody's buying a new car. And businesses are firing people and, you know, you know, scaling down and things like that. But that's what you have to do because we have to take money out of circulation. Antonio, thank you so much for joining us. Great thank to have you on the show.
Thank you, Tiffany. That was China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo. And joining us after the break, REA Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. He touches on how U.S.-Middle East relations tie into the current fossil fuel tensions, the steps that need to be taken to ensure American troops aren't sent back there, and more after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Joining us now, REA Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. He touches on how U.S.-Middle East relations tie into the current fossil fuel tensions, the steps that need to be taken to ensure American troops aren't sent back there, and more. Let's dive in. REA, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And so you just came out recently with a new book called Let My People Know. And in it, you kind of talk about how the Trump administration was able to get the Abraham Accords signed and the whole process behind that. So in your book, you also mention how in the past, maybe Israel and China, for instance, had a lot of business deals. There's a lot of business interests there. But because Israel is a big U.S. ally, that kind of had to change. So can you kind of explain how that balance worked out? Sure. Uh, look, for Israel, just to understand where they're sitting, they have felt and continue up until the Abraham Accords to feel isolated in their own neighborhood. So when you feel isolated in your own neighborhood, you look for friends wherever it is that you can find them. They've always been great friends with us as the United States. But when the Chinese discovered that Israel is a source of enormous technological prowess and innovation, the Chinese came in with one of their charm offenses. And as opposed to what the Chinese do in Africa, which is essentially try to pay for everything and ultimately own it later, the Chinese felt that by coming into Israel, early investors, overinflated valuations, access to their market, which, as we all know, the Chinese market is extremely large, it became a very attractive uh, partnership for Israel, especially Israel only had one major superpower that it was friendly with, which was us. Now, when the Trump administration came along, we stood with Israel like no previous U.S. administration had ever stood with Israel, starting with President Trump, Jared Kushner, David Friedman. The list goes on and on. But with that comes responsibility. Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was the prime minister during the course, uh, prime minister of Israel during the course of the Trump administration, used to always say that Israel has no greater friend than the United States, but the United States has no greater friend than Israel. Now, if that's the case. Israel needs to stand with the United States vis-a-vis our race for technological superiority versus China. And that meant that Israel needed to have something that looks like Scythius that we have in our country, which goes ahead and informs investors and infrastructure and all sorts of issues that come up with nefarious Chinese investments. And we began on the first week of educating the Israelis and at the very end of the four years, actually working with them to enforce what some of those rules and regulations and laws ultimately would become. And given that, I think you mentioned in your book, too, where the friend and the foes, right? And it has to be made clear what they benefit from and what the consequences are. So do you see that playing out more with, say, other countries in the area? Yeah, part of that has to do with our ability to be clear. And one of the 
result of that clarity was the Abraham Accord. When I discuss and let my people know, it's very clear. The United States made a lot of decisions during President Trump's four years. Some of them were popular. Some of them were impopular or unpopular. But each country knew why the United States made which decision that we made and when we made it. And after they understood what decision we made, they were then able to decide what was in the best interest of their country. And basically what that means, just on a very simple basis, is that when the United States of America recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, we moved our embassy to Jerusalem. Did they love that decision in the United Arab Emirates? Probably not. But they understood the decision. And they calculated with that data point that, okay, the United States is going to stand closer to Israel. And if we want to stand closer to the United States, maybe we should stand closer to Israel as well. And that was part of the origination of the Abraham Accords. The same piece needs to be emphasized and then reemphasized regarding China. You can't sit on both sides of the fence. You can't have a pro-U.S. foreign policy and a backdoor entry for the Chinese. You just can't do that. It, the, the, the rubber will hit the road, and that will hurt our relationship with that country. Just one place where that became extremely clear is Iran, which is the number one uh, problem causer in the entire Middle East, was propped up based upon their economic dealings with China. If you look at it today, the Iran-China-Russia triangle is a source of enormous evil throughout the world. And we have to let our allies in the region, the Middle East specifically here, know that they can pick one or they can pick the other, but they can't have both. So it seems, especially right now, a big issue has been gas, <laughs> even here in the United States. And there are reports that Saudi Arabia was considering doing transactions with China in the Chinese yuan. So how would you see that affecting the area? I would see that as a demonstration of tremendous weakness by the United States. When, when our president travels to Saudi and asks them to pump more oil, to produce more energy, they have to be looking at us as though we've got two heads. They know that we can be energy independent at home. And so therefore, when we show up there, to the best of my knowledge, it's not called regional warming, it's called global warming. So therefore, if there's an energy climate issue, then it should affect the United States just as much if it's pumped in Saudi, Iran, Venezuela, other places that we've gone to ask them to produce more energy, as well as it does when it's produced in Texas or in the Dakotas. So when we turn and look at them and say, we need you to produce more energy, they look at us and say, why aren't you producing your own energy? It doesn't make any sense. So when they look at these nonsensical decisions that our leadership is making, they turn and say, look, China is a good long-term partner. China comes with a lot of challenges, and they're aware of those challenges, but they say there's consistency. And sometimes knowing what those challenges are is worth it on a risk-reward basis versus the not knowing what comes with your allies that you're assuming you can trust, but you can't always trust, if that makes sense. So given kind of the checks and balances, if you will, in that region, what can the U.S. do going forward then, since it seems so much is at stake? Yeah, uh, clarity is the number one uh, name of the game. And to be clear, who are our foes? And that's Iran, and that's China, and that's Russia. And you can stand with them or you can stand with us. Now, who are our allies? That's Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and others. And we'll stand with them. Two very clear examples to that. When Abu Dhabi, the capital of the United Arab Emirates, sustained a drone attack from terrorists funded by the Iranians, we, the United States of America, did not rush to condemn the attacks. We didn't rush to provide aid. We didn't rush to provide additional defensive alignments. We waited. 
and we listened. That's not how allies treat each other. When the Saudis received relentless drone attacks against civilians and against the number one energy producer in the world, Aramco, and we're not doing more in order to prevent that from happening. In fact, we're taking the Houthis uh, who are in Yemen, who are primarily responsible for those drone attacks, off of the terror watch list or off the terror list. Not only are we not helping our allies, we're actively hurting our allies. And when our allies get mixed messages, they have to act in their own best interest. None of these guys, none of these countries want to run to the Chinese. They don't want to run to Russia. They don't want to run to Iran. But if we're not there and we're not dependable, where are they going to go? And on that note, the U.S. right now seems to be, you know, trying to reenter the Iran nuclear deal. So how is that going to affect the whole region? It'll destabilize it. We saw what happened when President Obama ran into the Iran deal the first time, and it created all of this chaos and all of this havoc. And the reason that that happened was the previous administration, meaning President Obama's administration, felt that Iran could be a stabilizing influence in the region and the Palestinians could be a stabilizing influence in the region. And if only we could try to put Israel into a box, everything will be fine. President Trump came and said the exact opposite. He came to the Islamic majority countries and said, look, radical Islam is a tremendous threat to the world, but first it's a threat to you guys. You deal with it or we'll deal with it. And they stood up and they dealt with it. Then he said, Iran is a great threat. We'll deal with Iran together with you and ripped up the horrendous Iran deal. Then finally it said, Israel is the solution for the Middle East, not the problem in the Middle East. And we're going to stand with Israel, not yesterday, not today but tomorrow and forever. And when that happened, you wound up with five peace treaties happening in under 123 days, one of the most magnificent accomplishments by the United States of America in terms of foreign policy, certainly in my lifetime, and yet it wasn't celebrated. And not only wasn't it celebrated, it wasn't continued meaningfully by the following administration, which doesn't make any sense because peace in the Middle East is not a Republican issue, and it's not a Democratic issue, it's an American issue. Any American president should be supportive of the Abraham Accords, should be standing against the Iran deal, and should be standing for our allies in the region. This is sort of civics 101. And what can the, say, average American do then? Maybe some of them are like, we just had the whole Afghanistan thing. They don't want to think about the Middle East. What would you say to them? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody wants to see any troops in the Middle East. We don't want to see American young men and young women uh, over there, but we do want to see American young men and young women at the universities there. We want to see them in the research labs. We want to see them being part of startups over there. And we want to see them bring those startups back to America. We want to see the Middle East as a place of peace and prosperity. The only way to do that is to double down on when peace is happening. There's a momentum. There were five peace treaties signed in 123 days. There are more waiting in the wings, but we have to be invested in them. If I'm an average American, I'm curious if my governor is going to travel to the Abraham Accord countries to think about how we can give preferential deal treatment to those countries versus China. I'm curious whether my mayor is going to go ahead and make a trip to the region and see how we can create programs that help a diverse community in all of our cities succeed the same way they're creating diverse communities in their cities to be able to succeed. And mostly I'm curious if my members of Congress and members of the Senate are willing to go ahead and invest and the future success of the Abraham Accords, because if they don't, and if we do not, I'm not positive when the next time will roll around for our generation or the next for true Middle East peace to happen. And what winds up happening when there is not Middle East stability, we wind up getting involved. So it's the exact opposite. We don't want to get involved. 
So make sure that we invest in peace. If we ignore it, China, Russia, Iran show up, and we're going to wind up showing up because that's where our energy comes from. That's where our allies are. Let's support the peace, and therefore we don't need to deal with it when it comes time to chaos and war. And Arya, any last words you'd like to add? Yeah, I'd like to say that your program brings very important light to this challenge that we have. It's a struggle in between the United States of America uh, and China. It's a struggle that I don't think we articulate well enough to our kids. I don't think we talk about it at the kitchen table. This is something that not only do we need to care deeply about, but we need to be prepared to sacrifice for. And I think the future of the United States of America and all of our allies is dependent on us winning this if we don't think that the Middle East and Israel specifically is a key player to us winning in this war of morality and technological supremacy, then we're missing out on understanding what the chessboard really looks like. So I think if we care deeply about this issue, we should care a lot about the Middle East as well. Arie, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Arie Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. And in the first half, we heard from China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.